More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good morning, listeners. It is 14th of June, 2019, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 9 a.m., and on Friday, we have a special episode. It is a uh, special release of Inspiration Dissemination. I am your host, Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Interviews are recorded live, especially this one, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. This morning, our guest is Betsy Emery, a master's student in forest ecosystems and society in the College of Forestry. She is advised by Dr. Troy Hall. Welcome to the show, Betsy. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, so you're going to interview me in this episode of Inspiration Dissemination, of which this is a very live interview because I literally have no idea what your questions will be. The only thing I know is a little bit about your research. So how about you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I am a first year master's student in the Forest Ecosystems and Society program. Um, and that's a really interdisciplinary program here at OSCO. So they so students in that program really focus on all kinds of different things. I study environmental psychology, which is how and why people connect with nature the way that they do. So how kind of our uh, values and childhood experiences and things like that really shape the way we connect with nature and how that really shapes the way we think about it in terms of making decisions on public lands or um, things like that. So that's kind of what I do. Oregon State seems to be the perfect place to kind of study the intersection of how humans view nature and the different views that humans have with nature. So has Oregon State been a pretty decent hub for you to do your work? Yeah, I would definitely say Oregon State provides a lot of good opportunities to investigate this. I mean, um, Troy, my advisor, has done work around this for a very long time, uh, especially focusing on like public perception. So how people kind of perceive uh, projects on on natural lands and things like that. Uh, but we also our fish and wildlife program is really incredible. Our psychology program is really great. So there's a lot of different opportunities to really t plug in to people who do cool work and really know what's going on. And then the community, of course, is really active. So there's lots of good uh, test subjects out there. <laughs> of which I am a lucky <laughs> test subject today. Yeah, our little lab rat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I have a, a joke in my little comic thing that I'm being bred as a lab rat, of which I know a lot of lab things. 
but I don't want to be a lab rat. I yeah, don't. What else could you be? Many other things. We'll get to me. We'll get to me <laughs> in a second. Um, let's get back to your research. One thing that makes it different of which uh, probably what most people would think of as quote unquote, you know, hard science is where, you know, we I have these numbers that I that I generate out of my lab data that I can quantify and put on graphs and say this is exactly the effect size. But tell me how your research is different than than the quantitative type that we're used to seeing. Yeah, yeah. So lots of people, when they think of science, they think of numbers, they think of spreadsheets, they think of like really exact measurements and, you know, the precision and accuracy and all of that. Uh, and that's one way of looking at the world. And in social sciences, especially, so the sub, like the study of humans, you really dive into this other arena called qualitative research. Um, and that really uses a lot of different types of data. So we don't really collect numbers. Um, and more so, it's focused on interviewing people, looking at different documents, trying to really understand the depth of something that's happening, um, and using textual data to really get to that. So yeah, some of the common, I guess, qualitative research methods would be um, interview for sure, that's very common, focus groups, so having lots of people come together and talk about something um, and seeing how multiple people in a conversation really uh, drives it, like different themes that might emerge through the through, through discourse. Um, and then you also see things like content analysis. So maybe you're really interested in how an organization talks about something, how they might shape public policy, how they might be shaping um, public conversation about something. So maybe you pull all the documents that they have published around a certain topic and start to look through it and look for themes in it and things like that. So there's a lot of different ways that people embark on qualitative research, but ultimately the goal is really looking for depth of understanding. Where, and I think that's the primary difference is quantitative work, this like number-driven um, research, really looks to generalize trends. Like you want to understand like this thing, this thing that I found, uh, holds across all of these different scenarios. And I know that because I have collected all of these things and I have controlled for that. Um, but in qualitative research, it doesn't really matter what the generalizability of your, your outcomes are. You're not really looking for this overarching trend. You want to understand all of the mechanisms of how this, this issue or this topic that you're investigating is working. So one example I can think of is uh, as people drive on Highway 20 going towards the east side, they have that big uh, biscuit fire or sorry, B&B &B fire complex. That's pretty obvious on the landscape. And you can ask a lot of people, you know, oh, how do you feel about fire? And you aggregate all of those answers. And then you say, oh, people say that, you know, fire is really bad. But what you're interested in, in figuring out is not what they said, but why they came to those conclusions. What's their value set that kind of dictates how they feel about fire in the long run. Yeah, yeah. And that's the ex that's kind of the specific area of qualitative and social science research that I look at exactly is. I think it's really important, and I think survey data plays an important role in kind of understanding across the board, people think this, people support this, people don't support that. Um, people, you know, identify these types of risks or, you know, whatever you put into your survey data. People are going to vote like this, that kind of stuff. But to me, it's like, yeah, that information is really useful. It helps us understand how people think about something, but we don't really understand anything past whether they support or oppose it. And to me, I'm like, wait, that's where all the story is. Like, I want to know <laughs> that piece. So that's why I was like really interested in doing qualitative 
versions of those types of questions, I guess. Um, So before we get into your interview with me, uh, (laughs) um, if there are any uh, students out there, undergrads especially, who want to get more involved with with this type of work, and they want to pursue graduate school, I'm assuming that, um, how would they go about figuring out, you know, what kind of advisor to contact to build a successful kind of research career? Yeah, that's, I took, I definitely took the cold call approach uh, when I was looking for graduate school advisors. I definitely just started looking at schools that were publishing a lot of interesting stuff or had very interesting lab groups, you know, like their lab group focuses explicitly on the human dimensions of natural resource management, uh, fish and wildlife management of, you know, public lands, outdoor rec, whatever, uh, and start to see, you know, that type of who is doing that kind of work and is that in a place I want to live and, you know, having those phone calls and things like that. I, I hooked up with Troy, I guess two years ago now. Um, And yeah, it was just a long email followed by a phone call, followed by a visit. And I kind of knew that that woman was doing incredible work and I wanted to spend some time with her to to learn the ropes, I guess. So that's what brought me here. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of cold calls and a lot of like just (laughs) emails into the ether. I don't know. (laughs) I I would also uh, recommend that if if students are trying to get in touch with a um, with a with a PI or a potential mentor, <laughs> to don't be afraid to send multiple emails. Oh yeah, definitely. Like yeah. just follow up, like reply, reply, reply. <laughs> hey, by the way, just making sure you got this in your inbox. Yeah, I'd like to follow up with this email I sent two weeks ago. <laughs> just wanted to see. <laughs> yeah, you know, mentors and advisors—they're they're busy people, and if they see your name once, they may you know ignore it. But if they see your name two or three times, okay, they'll they'll might they might read it this time. <laughs> yeah, I actually heard from a fellow grad student that their major advisor told them that if they didn't get at least three emails from a potential student, that they wouldn't respond because it didn't seem like they were that serious, quote unquote. Wow, three emails. Three emails, yeah. To me, I'm like, uh, if you don't respond with a second email, I'm kind of disinterested in following up. But hey, we all have a different a different method. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So speaking of your methods, should we dive into your interviews or anything else that you want to get out of the way first? Uh, I will say that uh, just, you know, for my own disclosure, uh, usually we have to, this is a pilot interview. So I would say that usually I have to collect informed consent. And that's a huge part of working with human subjects is that you have to really outline the risks that might uh, be posed by participating in the research project. I'm really lucky in that (laughs) my research is just straight up interviews. So there's not a lot of risk. I'm not really investigating any type of sensitive or emotional topics. But I do want to say that, you know, today we're going to participate in an interview and I hope that you consent to that interview. And it seems like you consent to having that video or that uh, interview audio recorded. So that's good. (laughs) But those are some of my first uh, questions, you know? Yeah, uh, I consent. Also, yes, this will be recorded. And if the listeners in the area uh, can only stay for 10 minutes of this interview, don't you worry because it's going to be a podcast form. Uh, We typically release it on Mondays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. Under the name Inspiration Dissemination, this will be a special episode. Cool. Okay. Um, and then uh, for our listeners, how long does uh, this interview typically take? Uh, 
I would say it takes about 45 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And there's a few different pieces of it. So the first piece is really talking about nature, views of nature, how you kind of think about what nature is, how you want to connect with it. Um, And then you'll read a scenario about a specific forest health threat. Um, In this case, we're going to talk about Swiss needle cast. And then I'll ask you a series of questions about that scenario that you just read. And then we'll do some wrap up at the end. Okay. Let's get started. All right. Um, so people kind of have two different ways of viewing the natural world. Um, some would say that humans are more important than nature, while others would say that, you know, nature is still really important, even if it isn't providing any type of value for humans. And so I'm wondering kind of how do you respond to those two statements? Is there one that you feel like you more you identify more closely with? Is there another one that you think that you identify with? And kind of why do you feel drawn to one of those statements? I definitely feel drawn to the latter statement that, uh, I forget the exact wording, but nature can nature can just be, but it doesn't have to provide a, a direct service to humans. Uh, I think I gravitate towards that definition because I really, really enjoy backpacking and especially wilderness areas. And the concept that this wilderness area is, you know, untrammeled by man, uh, that is something that I value a lot in the sense that what value does it provide when I'm not there backpacking? Well, it's, it's just there, but I do value that. Right. So yeah, so it provides value even if you're not participating in it. And even if it's not providing like wood or mushrooms or some other, you know, Uh well, I guess, you know what, you know what it is providing It's providing solitude. Yeah. That, yeah, that I would say like the, intangible is that it is providing solitude and that's why I value it a lot. Do you think that you get some sort of like emotional, like, do you feel emotionally or like spiritually connected to nature when you're in those, in those places? Mm. The first thing that comes to mind is, uh, at the end of a yoga session, you know, you kind of like try to find your center and like clear your mind. I've been very unsuccessful at doing that when I've done (laughs) yoga, um, (laughs) very unsuccessful. But when I do go backpacking for multiple days at a time and I come back, there is never a moment that I'm like, oh, I'm totally connected. But it's in the returning back to civilization of like, oh, man, I got a bunch of like emails to respond to. It's in that sense that I feel like I was able to kind of keep my mind clean and like uninhibited by the day to day nonsense. And from that sense, it's only when I look back, I think, that I realize like that was a you know cleansing experience, but not necessarily like an emotional connection to nature, just kind of like a, um, a, a happiness with the stillness that's around me. Yeah, like a psychological response for sure. And maybe you're not aware of it in that moment, but after the fact, it's really easy to see like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, back in the real world, back here at, you know, in the lab, I'm a lot more stressed <laughs> than I am when I've been camping for three nights in a row. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so kind of getting back to those statements I was posing, do you think that like uh, society and nature are of equal value? Do you think that one has more value than the other? Ooh. Ooh, that's tough. Um, so for context, I study how carbon cycles in natural ecosystems. Um, so grasslands, wildlands, forests. Uh, but typically I study areas that um, don't typically have a lot of human-imposed management. And uh, since I study carbon cycling, uh, the things that I tend to f- gravitate towards is that 
uh, all these systems are kind of interacting and playing off of each other. Um, but they've developed in such a way that is over biological evolution timelines. That is just not magical because it's, you know, pretty systematic in how things evolve. So I see that kind of evolution of nature as just absolutely incredible and in how systems respond and buffer themselves against change. Um, that's kind of, to me, the arduous nature of microbes living and dying and constantly fighting a war for nutrients and then, you know, being where they are now. I tend to see that as fairly impressive. Um, although on the other, the other side of the coin is society has produced the technology that we have today. You know, people can listen to us from a couple miles away, and on Monday they can listen to us remotely when they're in the back country if they download it onto their podcast feed. So, like, society and technological advancement is pretty freaking impressive. Also, I I I, I don't know how to how to square those two because they're so different. Well, you can feel. I mean, you can feel like they're equal. That is. That seems unfair. It seems unfair to think that they're equal. Yeah, because it's like comparing uh, apples to oranges. Yeah, it's interesting to compare something that's billions of years old to the last 250 or so, of which we've yeah. really had a major impact on on the yeah. world around us. <laughs> True. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good frame for thinking about this question. I, I also studied geology in my undergrad, so I'm like, ah, oh, these like millions and billions of years time frame is like bananas of like how carbon and you know salt cycles. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I got my iPhone today. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> but how long is it going to take our iPhones to break down? That's the true question. <laughs> um, okay, so then, so we talked a bit about how you kind of spend time in nature and how you value it, but I'm curious, like, what does the word natural mean to you in the context of land? Ooh. Like, what is a natural landscape to you? Or what, it might be easier to say what is not natural, Oftentimes people define, you know, nature by what is not, what it isn't. Uh, hmm. uh, and the first thing that comes to mind is a lack of human input of, of what nature is. Um, so in, I, I, I would think of, of nature as places that I can't get a phone call. Like there is a space requirement there, there, there's a spatial extent requirement for nature to be nature because in order for kind of these ecosystems to uh, to, to function properly, they do need a, a literal space allocation, you know, for buffering against wind or for sunlight and X, Y, Z. But that spatial requirement, uh, at least in my mind, is also hinged on, on how close you are to cell service. So, like, at least for me, I have a really bad service. It's T-Mobile. Thank you, T-Mobile. <laughs> in most places in the Mac Dunn, uh, the College Forest just north of here, uh, there is no service, right? Now, granted, there's, like, a couple sections of, uh, quote-unquote, old growth uh, or spots in the College Forest where they just have it managed, um, where that feels very natural, for sure. But in the ecosystem context, the McDonald's on Forest used to be, like, a grassland oak savanna, and since fire suppression since we've implemented fire suppression then conifers have allowed to come in so like is that a natural ecosystem that used to be there actually no not really it used to be mostly oaks and grasslands but like people love those big old trees right um 
Okay, so but but would you consider the so maybe you don't consider them natural? Like maybe you don't consider MacDen natural because it has hasn't it isn't what its natural state would be, you know, it isn't an oak savanna. But do you consider it nature? I would consider the Mac Dunn natural because it's definitely within its, ooh, here's a uh, buzzword. It's definitely within its like natural range of variability or historic <laughs> range of variability. Like, could that have been a conifer forest in the past? Yeah, like previous to the last, you know, glacial maximum of like 11,000 years ago. Yeah, sure. Definitely could have been like a true conifer forest. Was it a conifer forest in the most recent since the glacial maximum? No, not really. But is it within that like historic range of variability that like that ecosystem could have existed there? Yeah, for sure. Like if the Mac Dunn instead was like a corn cropping rotation system, yeah, that would not be natural at all. Okay, so it sounds like natural to you is really based off of whether or not it would actually be that way without human manipulation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I guess I would, yeah, again, I would call natural a lack of human input. Okay. Or nature a lack of human input. It is interesting to think about it as as input. A lot of people will say, you know, nature is not manipulated by human. It's not touched by humans. And so to me, I think of that as like, and people will say like, oh, there's trails here or there's a parking lot here. So that's not nature to me. But or that's not natural to me. It's planned. There's some sense of those things. But it's interesting to think of like, oh, I can get a cell phone call here. So that's not <laughs> natural, you know? And it's interesting to think like, oh, you could probably, I mean, I'm like from the, I'm from the Southwest. There are tons of desert areas that have no cell phone coverage. And I could be on the middle of a road and not have, you know? <laughs> and so that's interesting. Yeah, um, there's uh, lots of places on the highway that I, I don't get service either. So it's not the perfect metric. I agree. <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't have to. I mean, it doesn't have to be. That's that's what we're doing. We're doing social science research. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to have some like <laughs> matrix in the back end of like, and this is why I think this. Let me come to this. Um, OK, so. All right. So one more question, one more probe on that question to, you know, see. So in your mind. So we talked about MacDon and obviously that's like a much larger kind of expansive preserved area. Mm -hmm. What about like places like Avery Park or Willamette Park? You know, these are city parks. There's some infrastructure or a lot of infrastructure, depending on how you want to think about it. I mean, Willamette Park and Crystal Lake have huge baseball fields and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. would you consider those natural or nature? So I go running there pretty often. It's really nice because it's along the water. Would I consider it natural? Um, I uh, another way to define natural, at least in my brain, is if the kind of sounds of the ecosystem drain out the sounds of humans. So, like, if the sounds of birds are greater than the sounds of like the people with their dogs or or strollers or or cars turning on or doors shutting, like if if there's um, an, an audible component of like the river is right there and as I run along the river I can only hear the river and birds that feels very much like nature to me so there's like certain portions of that trail that very little people visit um, that feels very natural versus other parts that are along the waterfront and it's paved next to soccer fields on one side and then there's a big 
you know, uh, like an arboretum almost, and then a big parking lot. Like as you run through those portions, there's like always people there. There's always, you know, um, you know, people yelling or or this and that. And like, do you hear the birds or the river? Maybe if you try really hard, but it's not an overwhelming kind of like auditory blanket that right. you would in other parts of uh, of Crystal Lake. Yeah. Yeah, soundscapes are becoming a really important part of like natural resource planning and, and outdoor recreation planning. And like, how do we really monitor soundscapes and make sure that they are protected and that people can have those kind of natural soundscape experiences so in a gradient? I'm thinking to a, a smaller idea, which is, um, so every park is kind of big. Yeah. Um, but there's another park. I, I forget what it's called, but it has like these cool sand volleyball courts on there. And it's, you know, surrounded by houses everywhere. But it's like this big, you know, big old square of uh, of grass and trees. And like that place is really cool. I really enjoy going there. Would I consider that nature, though? No, because no matter which direction I look, there's always houses and there's always cars and there's always um just because it's, you know, smack dab in, in, in the middle. Um, would I consider it nature if, like, on the perimeter? Oh, I should also say this park. On the perimeter of the park, it's, like, fairly open. There's only, like, a couple big old trees. But if instead the perimeter of the park, if it had, like, big old bushes that you couldn't see the houses, would I consider that nature just because you're, like, physically occluded from... Yeah, it's like from, a screen. Yeah, I, 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 I might. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. All right. Do you have anything else you want to, these are, that's kind of the end of my questions around nature. Do you have anything else you want to like, just say about how you kind of think about nature, what, how you define or think about values and how you value nature? For nature, I think the, when you first asked me this nature question of, you know, what do you think of nature? The first thing that comes to mind is my favorite kind of nature. So everything was uh, like if that, like that was the baseline almost. And my favorite kind of nature is for sure wilderness areas where it's really hard to get to. It takes multiple miles. You're, you're the, the ethos of, of wilderness is literally leave no trace other than footsteps. Uh, like the, the common idea is, you know, you take only pictures and leave only footprints of which I love that. Um, I'm going to go on a big old backpacking trip in a couple weeks. So maybe that's also on my mind, but uh, but nature as like this place of solitude, I think comes back to that, to my personal favorite form of nature, which is wilderness areas, wherever they may be. Yeah, I get you. That's like my thing too. I'm very much into backpacking and to me, I'm like, I need big nature. I often think about <laughs> like city parks are great. They provide a very important service. I use city parks all the time, but yeah, when I'm really thinking about nature, I also go to like the wilderness and um, that kind of untouched, not going to see people, probably going to be alone or, you know, so yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> uh, all right. So the next set of questions that I have are really focused on kind of what you think about genetic modification. Huh. Yeah, I know. We're really moving in here. So to make sure that we're both on the same page, when I say genetic modification, I'm really talking about adding, removing, or editing an organism's genetic material or DNA so that that organism has new characteristics or traits. And I'm really interested in your thoughts about potentially genetically modifying trees to make them more resistant to insects and diseases. And so as we talk, feel free to think aloud so I can be sure to understand why you feel the way you do. So again, like I'm interested in more than whether or not you support or oppose it. I'm really interested in why you might support or oppose it. So... Hmm. 
Um, my first question, do you have any opinions about genetic modification in general? Uh, yes, many. Let's hear them. <laughs> um, so in my undergrad, I did a soil science major, and soil science being very much in the realm of agriculture. Um, so from an agriculture perspective, that's kind of where I first heard, uh, you know, genetic, genetic modification of, of plants. And when I first heard of it, it was pitched as, um, hey, there's this new rice species that releases like half as much methane in order to produce, and it has more, uh, like a higher protein content. So, you know, you can do, you can produce more food or, you know, higher quality food with the same amount of land and with a smaller kind of methane output. From a global change perspective, that was pretty ideal, right? Um, at, at the same time, I was also very much uh, kind of exposed to the Monsantos of the genetic modification world where it's like, oh, hey, we can breed the seed so that, you know, glyphosate uh, doesn't affect this, this organism. So instead of being really careful of how we apply, you know, herbicides and pesticides, you can just like dump it on and like that's the only thing that'll survive. Uh, so there's definitely good and bad with, with genetic modification, but the amount of I get I think new stories that genetic modification gets is not proportional to the amount of good that it could produce oh okay so do you think that the new stories about genetic modification are maybe slanted in one way I mean the stories are 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 well founded right like there are real problems with you know uh, adding in twice or five times as much herbicide application per year uh, now than we did, you know, two decades ago. Like those are real issues, but I think those are the ones that people gravitate towards because it's easier to get people. It's easier to get readers who are scared than it is to get them to read happy stories. Of which there are lots of happy stories that are like, "Hey, this like corn varietal can you know puts roots instead of you know in the upper thirty centimeters of the soil where it can dry out really easily. It puts roots down in like the lower meter and a half where it can access groundwater." So you don't have to do irrigation. And if you don't have to do irrigation, then that's a lot of energy you save. That's a lot of, you know, line you don't have to put out. That's time that the grower isn't using. So like, you know, but is somebody going to read that story or are they going to read about how, you know, the the extra herbicide in the water is, you know, going downstream into, you know, some larger river system? Probably the latter. Um but I it's understandable that the public would want to gravitate towards those like really scary um headlines okay so when you think about so it sounds like you definitely know a lot about this topic so when you kind of think about where you stand on it would you say that you kind of support genetic modification generally or do, do you oppose it I think with genetic modification I have to think of it with a big umbrella right so of all the things that I know genetic modification can help decreased water usage, um, higher protein content of, you know, a, a lot of these, you know, rice or corn or, or soybean. Um, those are all really good things. And to say that I would be against it would be like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like, yes, there are definitely some negative consequences um, or unintended consequences of genetic modification. But to say that it that it should not be used at all because of a couple of bad apples, uh, I... It's it's really unfair, I think. Okay, so it kind of sounds like 
you're kind of in the middle. Like you want to like you can support some uses of it, but you don't want to like over overwhelmingly. It kind of depends on what the what the modified thing is. Yeah, I think I definitely lean more towards yes, use it more because I think most of the ways that we that we modify organisms isn't in the way that means we can, you know, just dump on a bunch of pesticides and herbicides. Like that is a couple that just has always gotten the headlines. Um, but taking a page out of uh, something that Neil deGrasse Tyson said, just like, hey, we've been selectively breeding these carrots to be orange and bigger, and we've select been selectively breeding these apples to be a little bit more crisp, like the Honeycrisp apples, right? Right. Um, of which, you know, that took generations and decades of, you know, just constantly putting a little bit of pollen here and a little Hundreds bit of pollen of there. Yeah. You know, so uh, kind of genetic modification for most of the circumstances, not all, right, but for most of the circumstances, it tends to be just an expedited way to do natural selection. Yeah, that's one way to think about it for sure. So then have you ever heard about or thought about the potential of genetically modifying trees, like forest biotechnology? The first time I heard about this was during your presentation, which was a couple days ago or, or last week. So yeah, a week ago today. A week ago today. Um, so that was the first time I'd ever heard about uh, genetically modifying trees. Okay. Um, oh, I have to look at my cheat sheet here. Okay, so then do you have kind of an opinion about that? Like, before we get started and I, like, give you a scenario and I, like, dive into questions, I'm curious, like, do you have kind of a baseline feeling about whether that's something you think that we should be investigating or we should be doing? So a lot of dollars go into genetically modifying, you know, plants because a lot of the plants that we're trying to modify produce food for us, produce food for humans, right? Um, and if that's the challenge that we have more humans, but the same amount of agricultural land or less agricultural land or more degraded agricultural land, all of those things are kind of true. How do we square that circle? Genetic modification seems like a really good way forward. The challenges that natural ecosystems face are global climate change. And if we had a tool in our toolbox, like genetic modification, but we decided not to use it to try and make our, our forest more resilient, that would, in my mind, almost be an abdication of our duty. Wow. So if genetic modification is a tool we could use to help our forests be more resistant then or resilient in the context of a changing climate, then we're being irresponsible as humans to not use it? I think it's almost that we have changed the system so far that the only way to kind of help maintain it is by helping nature along its way. Because one of the, at least from my perspective, Again, it's not the fact that climate is changing, right? The climate has been this way in the past, but it's the rate of change. So previously it had taken literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to go from 250 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere to like 415, which we're at now. But it has taken 80 years for that to happen. So if you have ecosystems that have a million years to adapt and change, they can kind of help themselves along their way, right? Um, you don't get, you know, massive extinctions. But if you get that level of change in a matter of 80 years, which is, you know, th two generations of trees, there is no way they're going to be able to adapt as quickly as we're going to need them to. So uh, it's it's because of the high rate of change that I think, again, natural selection would otherwise kind of figure itself out. But that takes time. 
And I see genetic modification as an expedited way to do natural selection. Okay. Okay. So now we're going to move into the scenario part of the interview. So I'm going to ask you to read a short description of Swiss needle cast, which is a a fungal pathogen. So, well, fungus-based disease that is affecting Douglas fir here in Oregon. Um, and really anywhere that Douglas fir lives. Uh, but yeah, so you'll read the scenario and then I'll ask you a series of questions about it. And I do just want to be very straightforward and upfront. This is kind of my ethical uh, sense of insecurity, I guess, uh, talking about this is that this is totally hypothetical. So I just want to be very clear that there are not genetically modified trees out (laughs) there right now. Like this is an exploratory thing. There is a lot of research going on about like where genes are within trees and how we might be able to help or apply this technology that we have um, to help them be more resistant. But it that's happening in a lab setting. There is nothing out there. You're never going to be, or I don't want to say never, but as of right now, (laughs) you would not be out in the forest and see a genetically modified tree. So just to be clear about that. Can I dovetail on that? Yeah. So for a master's project I did, uh, it was looking at tree growth following timber harvest. And in order to help uh, kind of uh, minimize the potential variation, uh, they needed to plant the same kind of tree to figure out like, do these treatments make a difference, right? Uh, so what they what they did, especially for this study, is they uh, they grew clones of the same exact genetic makeup of, of a tree. Um, and these large timber industries have the ability to do that. And what they're doing now is using natural selection, but in a very, very targeted way in greenhouses to figure out which are the seedlings that are most resistant to drought, which are the seedlings that can acquire nitrogen the easiest. So they're kind of doing what growers were doing, you know, 150 years ago of, you know, oh, this this corn crop did really well. I'm going to keep replanting this corn crop, you know, but um, we're already kind of doing it. But at this rate, it's definitely more just super targeted natural selection of industrial forest lands because they have a 40 year, 50 year timber rotation of which if their trees die from drought, well, that's a lot of money they just lost. Yeah, exactly. Forestry has a big economic impact, so you got to be kind of precise. Yeah. Um, all right. So. And then I'm going to read the scenario for the listeners so that way they they know what uh, what I'm looking at. Okay, scenario, Swiss needle cast. This is a small four-paragraph paper. Swiss needle cast is a disease that is caused by a fungus. It only infects Douglas fir, the dominant timber species in Oregon. Although the disease is called Swiss needle cast, the fungus that that causes it is native to western U.S. It's present wherever Douglas fir grows, but it has become particularly damaging to Douglas fir on the western side of the Oregon Coast Range since the late 1980s. Annual aerial surveys conducted by the Oregon Department of Forestry estimate that each year more than 300,000 acres of Douglas fir forest in this region are impacted. Scientists believe that the current Swiss needle cast epidemic is caused by a variety of factors, including climatic conditions and topographical variables. Swiss needle cast is, a common, is particularly common in areas that get a lot of spring and or summer rain and where mild winters favor the disease's growth and reproduction. There's also evidence that the increase in acreage of Douglas fir plantations in areas of the coast range that were previously dominated by other tree species has contributed to environmental conditions that promote the disease development and spread. 
Although the Swiss needle cast rarely kills trees, it's an especially concerning forest health threat for tree farms and land managers because it reduces tree growth rates. Primarily, the disease, the disease causes Douglas fir to lose their needles, which can have substantial effects on how quickly they put, they put on trunk or height growth, growth, impacts that can decrease their long-term survival. Oregon's epidemic areas generally have decreases in annual growth ranging from 20 to 50%. The growth loss is estimated to have an economic impact that exceeds 200 million each year. Applying fungicide or using Douglas fir seeds from an area that isn't infected with Swiss needle casts are the two ways land managers can protect their farm from this disease. Scientists may be able to genetically engineer Douglas fir to be resistant to Swiss needle cast. So that's the scenario, and you're going to ask me questions about this scenario. Is that right? Yeah, starting with... Wait, wait, wait hold on. Yeah. So it turns out that my advisor, uh, Jeff Hatton, he has been he's a soil scientist, and we've done some work on Swiss needle cast. And one of his graduate students, Dave Fry, he just graduated, and he worked with Swiss needle cast disease. And since we're in the same lab, we usually talk about ideas and concepts of what could be causing Swiss needle cast. And we think we have a mechanism oh, wow. of, of aluminum uh, toxicity or limitation in soil and in needles that could be helping uh, that uh, aluminum could act as a um, kind of driving factor as to whether or not a, a tree will get Swiss needle cast. Like also the, these temperature and moisture conditions because right, like that's yeah. the way the fungus grows really efficiently. Um, that's interesting. But, but also we're, we found this super high correlation that's like too odd to be accidental in nitrogen content in the soil and nitrogen content in the leaves. Hmm. Um, but, you know, hopefully no other land manager is listening because, you know, we're trying to write that paper now. Right. So Stay I, tuned. I, yeah. So I know a bit <laughs> about Swiss needle cast because okay. I've been exposed to it for Dave's master's career for the last like three years. Right. Okay. Well, this again, this is a hypothetical situation, <laughs> a hypothetical scenario. Uh, you're probably one of the most educated people <laughs> that I'm going to interview as part of this project. So uh, I appreciate that knowledge. So um, I guess my first question is kind of what is your general reaction to this scenario? It sounds like you do know a lot about Swiss Needlecast, but I'm curious, like, how do you feel about it as a forest health threat? Um, yeah. And how do you feel about or, yeah, we'll start with that. How do you feel about this scenario and Swiss needle cast generally? So it was the one, two, I think the second paragraph. I'm going to reread the sentence because something immediately popped into my mind that I can't unthink. There is also evidence that this that the increase in acreage of Douglas fir plantations in areas of the coast range that were previously dominated by other tree species has contributed to environmental conditions that promote the disease's development and spread. The thing that... Uh, I did my undergrad in California. We did a lot of work with vineyards in my soil science degree. And in those vineyards, we talked a lot about disease outbreaks and fungal outbreaks and how in uh, Northern California, in the Napa Valley, it was particularly bad that once one uh, kind of vineyard got uh, this, this fungus, it spread across every single vineyard in Napa Valley. Now, why did it spread so fast? It was because the fences between vineyards had basically no distance between vineyard A and vineyard B and vineyard C and vineyard element OP, where they were all so close together that it was basically a monoculture. And this monoculture allowed the rapid expansion of this fungus and a massive economic decline. I see the same frustration with growing corn and soybean in these absolutely massive monocultures, 
where that's all you see. And if you get a disease in one spot of the field, it's going to spread super rapidly. Like that is not how to build resilient ecosystems, right? Um, and definitely here in Oregon, the primary or the the biggest the biggest dollar dollar producing tree is Douglas fir. So sure, makes sense. Yeah, plant more Douglas fir. Um, but boy, it's looking a lot more like agriculture, uh, especially the, the private timber industry. And I, I wonder if like they're just ignoring everything that they have learned from agriculture of like, you know, planting monocultures is uh, is good for maximum economic output. <laughs> but at the same time, the the risk there is really, really high if you have some kind of plant pathogen, in this case, uh, a, a fungus that kind of closes the stomata of the leaves. And if you all you have are Douglas fir, well, that's going to be super easy to infect all the Douglas fir. So the first thing that came to mind was, oh, man, they're making the same mistakes as agriculture. I'm just planting Douglas fir everywhere. Um, right. Of course, it's going of course, it's going to spread if that, you know. Yeah. If that's the only crop that's there, if yeah. you have like a fungal pathogen, that's what they want to do. They want to spread through conditions that are suitable for it. And so if you only have Douglas fir planted in that area, it kind of helps exacerbate that problem. Well, yeah, the spread of something if into potentially a problem. If there's lateral continuity of like all these Douglas fir branches, then yeah, it's going to be super easy to spread from A to B. Yeah. So, so my first thought is like, man, you know, wouldn't it be great if there were like buffer areas of, you know, of different kinds of tree, if there was, you know, more uh, species diversity to kind of help break, literally break up the, uh, the distance between these Douglas firs so that the outbreak wouldn't move as quickly. But right. of course, you know, the downside of, of, or the, the difficulty, not the downside, the difficulty in forestry is that, <laughs> you know, these rotations are 40, 50 years, years. So, you have to predict the Swiss needle cast things 40, 50 years into the future, or now you have to predict, you know, uh, large wildfires, but you plant these trees, you know, uh, nearly a, a generation ago. Right. Yeah. You don't really know when there's going to be an outbreak. You can't be very, pro it's hard to be proactive in the context of like natural resource management. Yeah. You don't know <laughs> how things are going to change. Everything's, there's a lot of uncertainty. <laughs> yes, Definitely. Um, okay. So it sounds like you had definitely heard about, um, Swiss needle cast. So I don't mm -hmm. need to ask that question. Also for the readers, I definitely have a cheat sheet here of questions <laughs> trying to make sure I ask Adrian all the, uh, all the ones that are on the list. <clears throat> okay. So I guess the next, so you know a lot about Swiss needle cast, you know how it functions, you know a lot about duck fur forests. Um, how do you feel about Swiss needle cast in the context of like, do you, how big of a problem do you think it is? You know, like, do you think this is something we really need to be putting resources into addressing? Oregon is one of the biggest timber producers in the United States. Millions of board feet. Millions of MBS. So <laughs> many board feet. Um, <laughs> uh, and Doug fir is our primary timber species. It is the highest grossing species for sure. Yeah. And on top of that, I think there is um, an inordinate, impact to rural communities if we don't do something about Swiss needle cast where like the the Portland the Portland hippies of the world like are they going to be impacted by you know 20 to 50 percent uh growth losses no they're not probably not at all <laughs> right but uh would you know the people living on in Coos Bay 
or in Sweet Home, would they be impacted? Sweet Home doesn't nearly have as much of a problem because they're a lot more inland. But especially the coastal communities, you know, how impacted are they? Much, much more impacted. So when I think of kind of Oregon as as a whole, do we need to be doing something about this? Yeah, I'd say so. Right, and you also think about like, there's been a lot of impacts to forest industry in Oregon over the last like 30, 40, de- 40 years, 40 decades, that'd be a lot, 40 <laughs> years. I mean, Northwest Forest Plan, huge impact on forest industry. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, Swiss Needlecast, potential to have huge impact on forest industry. Definitely. But, I mean, and it's already having $200 million economic impacts each year. So yeah, that's, it is, it is a justice issue. Like when you really think about it, you know, it's a social justice issue an economic justice issue in a lot of ways. So, um, okay. So do you, so how do you feel about the idea of genet? And again, this is hypothetical, but how do you kind of feel about the idea of genetically engineering it, you know, like to be resistant, if we could make a Douglas fir species that would not be attacked, infested, I don't know the right terminology for fungal pathogens. Uh, I think infected. Infected. Uh, if it wouldn't, if it wouldn't be infected by Cisneocast, then or the the actual Phytophthora or whatever it is that attacks it. Anyways, uh, uh, <laughs> moving on. This is a test, one. actually. So okay, yeah, is so it? An, an interesting point. So actually, um, I think pretty much all Douglas fir, uh, including on the east side of the coast range and probably on the Cascades, I think they all actually have Swiss needle cast as like a small fungus. Right, but it's an epidemic on the the west side of the coast range. Well, it, it, no, it's it's kind of like um, uh, like the fungus is always present, but it ha- it typically doesn't proliferate like it does oh, now. Right. Okay, so like. Um, like we all have bacteria on the outside of our skin, but mm-hmm. like most of those bacteria just like don't kill us. Um, Swiss needle cast is like, yeah, there's like the, the fungus kind of on all of the trees in, in the coast, but most of the time, and especially like pr- previous to 20 years f- from today, most of the time, like it didn't really influence their growth. They were just kind of like, eh, there's a couple needles that are infected here and there, but it doesn't, didn't do anything to like, you know, killing the crown and then killing the tree. Right. Right. Um, okay. Okay, so uh, yeah. So, what are your thoughts about genetically engineering tug fur to be resistant to Swiss needle cast? Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah, just as a means of protecting these economies that rely on tug fur. Or? Yeah, I mean, so the first thing that comes to my mind is like, hey, what if we could engineer a tree that has so aluminum is super common in soil, and if what my advisor found is true that there is this correlation between aluminum and soil. That if there's enough aluminum in soil, then aluminum um, can can help kind of fight off the, the the fungal disease at the needles. You know, like what if there is we could you know modify a tree that you know the other issue with aluminum is that if aluminum gets a little bit too high, um, there's aluminum toxicity that the kills the trees. Um, but it's a fairly narrow window between those two. So like, hey, what if we modify a tree that the aluminum toxicity a threshold is a bit higher? And then, you know, we can sprinkle in some aluminum or something that changes the pH and all kinds of other things. But like if if there was something like that that we could do, why not? So how does it make you feel when you think about it? Like, do you have an emotional response to the idea of genetically engineering a tree? Not really, because nature has been modifying itself for so long that like only the biggest and baddest and most awesome, you know, genetic pool is sticking around anyways. 
or just helping it along. That's true. So, so what if they, okay, so there's two kinds of different types of genetic engineering. So there are, I'm using like so many different words right now, like genetic modification, genetic engineering, genetic gene editing. Like there's so many words that are basically the same thing. But anyways, there's like two kind of different processes. One of them uses DNA from that kind of existing gene pool. So pulling from like maybe finding the trait in another Douglas fir tree, the exact genetic sequence that is, corresponds to that tree's resistance mm-hmm. and putting it into the tree. The tr- you know, this new tree and kind of breeding that at scale or cloning it, propagating it in some way at scale. Um, the other way is you find any genetic material out in the world. You know, DNA is a universal language. So like the DNA from a fish or from a fly or from uh, bread wheat, you know, these types of DNA species or DNA sequences can be used in other organisms. And so... I'm curious, like you're, you're talking about genetic, like the, we've been modifying the genetics of tr- trees over or any really organism that's been domesticated uh, since humans started becoming a big deal, I guess, building societies and things like that. I mean, that's why we have like 50 million kinds of pet dogs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And they all have hip dysplasia, but <laughs> too, too far. OK. Uh, anyways, I don't have a lab, so. Yeah, me neither. I don't. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I'm curious, how do you feel about one of those options over the other? You know, like the, the idea of using genetic material from a related species or shrub, another tree, a grass, maybe, or using DNA from a completely unrelated species to to establish this resistance. Like, do you have a different thought about one of those? Like, how do you feel? Yeah. Uh, I definitely have different thoughts. So for the the former example of using some kind of gene from a related or uh, from a related species, I feel uh, pretty okay with that. I, I don't see any qualms with that. For the latter example of using uh, using some kind of gene from a not related species, some kind of bread wheat, I would have some significant hesitation to that because I think because now we're introducing, you know, some kind of gene that is, in a sense, quote unquote, unnatural, right? Like if you if you took a gene from from a sword fern that like can tolerate high aluminum, and you put that in a Douglas fir, oh okay, well they're kind of always hanging out together anyways. But if you took a gene from you know the the zebra fish that happens to do this you know certain thing really well and it's taken in a tree and it's like well, that's like so far removed from what we know in terms of how ecosystems would function that like that would give me significant pause. Yeah. So it kind of, yeah, it is less natural. Do you feel like, mm, I don't know. I don't really know how to probe into that. I guess it's interesting to think about like how we all feel like, or not we all, but that's pretty much how almost every person I've talked to about this response is that if it's from a related species, I feel a lot more accepting of it. Yeah. But if it's from a non-related species, it, it kind of gives us pause. I, I think that the, the reason why I think that is because with a related species, at least, that that gene being in a, or if a gene is coming from related species, the way that ecosystem functions shouldn't change that much. Like what are the unintended consequences of, of giving 
a gene from understory vegetation and providing it to an overstory vegetation. I see the consequences of that uh, of of those unknowns relatively small compared to the uncertainty related with introducing a a gene from another ecosystem into you know coastal Douglas fir forests that like the unintended consequences and the unknowns are greater. Does that mean I'm against it? No, but I would definitely want to see some like pretty controlled field trials uh, of significant size that you could accommodate the literal size required for Douglas first to kind of operate, you know, so like a potted plant experiment wouldn't convince me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but you know, a, a, a couple acres probably would. Yeah, like mimicking how it would actually, or trying to find out how the system would work yeah. if you were to plant it out, like having that scale uh-huh. and that kind of dynamics Yeah, cause like what, in the trial. Like what happens if that gene that is really good at like preventing fungus from like attaching on or proliferating, like what happens if that gene like kind of kills the mycorrhizae of, of that tree or like an associated species of which like the mycorrhizae is super necessary to get nitrogen and without nitrogen these trees die, so... Um, it's, it's those unintended consequences that like are much harder to predict or I am. So here we go. Here, here's my assumption is that, or not my assumption, my, my heuristic is that, <laughs> is that uh, genes taken from more similar species are like the impacts to ecosystems are more predictable than genes taken from other species and put into an ecosystem of which it did not develop in. So if that is true, then I stand by what I said earlier. But if it is just as uncertain, uh, independent of where the gene comes from, whether it comes from a species of like kind of within that ecosystem or uh, outside of that ecosystem, then I think my thoughts about uh, my thoughts about using genes within kind of a, a similar species would would differ. Okay. Okay. So then going back kind of more broadly to just the idea of genetically engineering. Doug fur doesn't matter whether we're using what type of material we're using to do that. Um, you've mentioned a lot of like concerns around unintended consequences and concerns around, you know, maybe having impacts on the mycorrhizae of the tree, maybe having that gene spread into other organisms that might have to have, well, all, all trees have relationships with fungi. That's a very important thing that is major. Uh, I'm curious, like what other kind of risks are you nervous about? Like what kinds of concerns do you really have about the idea of, of doing this, of genetically modifying a tree? Hmm. What other risks can I think of? Um, and they don't have to be like super detailed. Like if you have risks about, you know, a general, a broad category. I don't think I have any additional ideas other than what I said earlier, like the unintended consequences of like uh, if for whatever reason, you know, some mycorrhizal species just uh, can't survive anymore with this new gene introduction because the gene was inserted too close to, you know, some associative gene that it needs for a protein that it needs to communicate with the mycorrhizae or something. Um, I think those were the only, that's the only hesitation that I can really think of is like what's happening on the microbial level to make sure that trees can still grow. Okay. Yeah. Some more ecological connections. 
uh-huh. system thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then what types of benefits do you see? We talked about kind of economic. Climate resilience is one. Okay. Like in, in climate resilience being like the largest umbrella, but it, uh, underneath climate resilience, you know, like the kind of pillars that that helps keep dry is, you know, like rural communities, uh, recreational activities, um, trying to find solitude, right? It, it would be pretty sad to go on the coast range and have it look like the Sierra Nevadas because there's no trees. Oh, rest in peace, Sierra Nevadas. I'm we go- still I'm, love you. I'm, I'm going there in two weeks and I absolutely love that place. Uh, Even with all the dead trees. I mean, it's pretty cool because like, uh, so yeah, where, where I go in this, in the Sierras are the quote unquote high Sierras, you know, like 9,000 feet plus where you mm-hmm. do approach tree line. And it is really cool to just like get up to a point where like the trees can't grow anymore cause there's no oxygen. And there's just like skeletons of trees that like, you know, in Oregon, those trees would be like, you know, eight, nine years old, but because they live in such harsh, harsh conditions, they're like 200 years old and they're like as tall as me and I'm not that tall. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, man, that tree had a freaking hard life. Yeah. If trees could tell stories, it'd be fascinating. <laughs> um, okay. So, so we talked about that. We talked about risks and benefits. We talked about where the DNA comes from. Now the other big question I have, I guess, is, does it matter to you? Like, does your opinion about genetically engineering this tree matter if the threat is native to that forest system? Like Swiss Needlecast, you were talking about, you know, this Phytophthora, the exact pathogen, the fungal pathogen that's causing this disease exists at scale. Like on um, all these Douglas fir trees have them. Some of them, it grows into this big epidemic. So it seems like it's a pretty na- like natural part of the ecosystem. But other threats really aren't. They're like brought introduced from another area, things like that. So I'm curious, like, does your idea about or your support, it sounds like you're supportive of genetically modifying this tree, does that depend on whether that threat is native or not native? Hmm. Uh huh. So a uh, different example is Phytophthora remorum, set an oak death. I, Why do I keep calling? I keep calling Swiss needle cat Phytophthora, but I think I'm just like in pathogen purgatory over here. Pathogen <laughs> purgatory. Um, so Phytophthora remorum was introduced from I think a Japanese nursery that was introduced on the west coast. So it was uh, it was it was a non-native uh, fungus. Um, so instead of Swiss needle cat, I'm thinking like, should we also, you know, quote unquote, help help these oaks? Hmm. I, I feel like, yeah, if it was a non-native or invasive species that was coming in and killing in a bunch of trees, would I, would I still advocate for the use of genetic modification? I think yes. So it doesn't yeah. really, it doesn't sound like the origin of the threat really matters to you. It's just the fact that there is a threat and that we have a tool that can fix it or potentially fix it. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think origin matters in, in this case for me. Is there a type of threat that you wouldn't care about? Like, that sounds horrible to say, but is there a threat mm. that you would be like, mm, maybe this is one that we don't really need to do something about. We don't need to genetically engineer. Ooh, I, uh, I think yes. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> let me confess my super unpopular opinion. Let's hear it. I'm so excited. <laughs> um. Uh, there's a, there's a bunch of invasive species that are you know coming in from from around the states and like they're uh, 
there's one in particular that I'm having such a brain fart on that I I just can't remember. Um, but it it's it it really proliferates following timber harvest. So we typically use like herbicide and pesticides to kill it. It's a plant. It's a plant. Yeah, okay. an understory species. Um, like a thistle or something. Uh, it's uh, it's not a thistle, but like kind of ish. Okay. The difference is that this invasive species is also a nitrogen fixer meaning that it pulls nitrogen from air as N2 and puts it into the soil. And for any ecosystem person knows, nitrogen is almost always the limiting nutrient. And we've been losing a lot of nitrogen. It's really hard to get nitrogen. So if you can add nitrogen to your forest, that's like an automatic free fertilization effect. So for me, it's like, oh, there's this species that we're spending like hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours picking this like magical star thistle or whatever it is. But it's like, we're not going to get rid of this invasive species by all the volunteer hours in the world. It's also putting in nitrogen back into the soil and it's life cycles only like, like three or four years or something. So you can just almost wait it out. I, there's one species in particular that I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but, but that one, I'm just like, I'm, I'm not going to volunteer my time to pick this, this invasive species that's like, is going to die. Like it's life cycle is super short and it provides some kind of ecosystem function. So like, meh, that one, I, no, I'm not going to spend my time worrying about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I used to struggle with that a lot when I was doing, I was managing a lot of acreages of land back in Flagstaff, Arizona, before I decided to come back to grad school. And I used to think about that all the time because we would put, there would be a large section of our budget each year and a, a large volunteer effort also in terms of like treating and removing invasive weeds and <laughs> I was always like yeah this is obviously something we should be doing we should be like protecting the ecological integrity of of this land and this is really important but also it's like I'm spending so much money and so much man hour human hours uh to do what like what are we what what change are we really seeing on the impact and what at what point does like an invasive species become part of an ecosystem. Ecosystems are dynamic, you know? Uh, yes, exactly that. We're like, <laughs> at what point would it take the entire organization, all hands on deck, 24-7, pulling this freaking weed? How long would that take? And would it even be possible? My guess is in many of these circumstances, it's really not yeah, possible. Right. Okay. So, like, so, so, so instead, like, why not use those, you know, human volunteer hours to, like, help build trails? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally, the, I had the same thought. I'm like, oh, let's do infrastructure. Like, but okay. Anyways, so moving on here. So, what's your idea about planting it? You know, we've talked a lot about like in general, you, this is something we should be modifying. You know, in a lab setting, we should do this. But what if they did it? You know, and then how would you feel about actually moving forward with planting it? I think I said earlier in the interview that I want to see an at scale uh, experiment. So like a, a hectare or a couple acres. Okay. Um, I don't think it would need to go. It would have to at least go through reproductive age so that you could see what the what the offspring, you know, are, are are doing. And I think once you have at least that first step, and you know, just making sure that that nothing goes completely out of whack and haywire. You know, once I saw that study, I'd, I'd feel pretty comfortable with planting it. Okay. So then in terms of setting, I guess, how do you feel about um, planting it in, you know, quote unquote, big nature, <laughs> the idea of like large national forests and things like that versus like city parks? Do you like, do you have Ooh. a different opinion yes. about, okay. City parks. Yeah. Go for it. 
Like why? Why is there a difference in thought? Um, so for city parks, they have a obligation to the people directly around them to kind of maintain the status quo. For national parks, their obligation is not to maintain the status quo, at least in my eyes. Their obligation is to um, allow people a window into natural ecosystem function. And I'm thinking of the I'm thinking of two examples in particular. One, the Yellowstone fire, um, where they the National Park Service decided, you know, fire is a natural part of this ecosystem. We're not going to fight it if it gets into the natural park, uh, the national park boundary. Uh, it's just going to it's going to be it's part of the it's part of the ecosystem. Um, and they took a lot of heat initially, but um, it it's on the you know ten year. I think it's been like 15 years since one of the major fires there. Um, it, I mean, ecosystems have responded as they should. Uh, and the other example I think of is Mount St. Helens. Uh, adjacent to the national park boundary. Or, yeah, adjacent to, well, uh, is it technically national park before St. Helens Blue? I, I think it was, I think it was just Forest Service. I think um, it was Forest land. Service land. Yeah, yeah, it was only established a national park after. But is um, it a national park or is it a national monument? Well, it's a national park unit. Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, so af- after the complete explosion of the side of Mount St. Helens, um, I think I think it actually was Warehouser that had land adjacent to Mount St. Helens. Warehouser has an obligation for fiber production, right? So what they did is they cleared out all of the dead biomass. And they replanted as quickly as possible. They they fertilized. They did everything that they could to get that land back in production as soon as possible. The the foresters at the time was like, well, there's lots of other things we're going to spend money on. We're just going to let that kind of reset itself on on the natural timescales. And it is resetting itself on natural timescales. It's still, quote unquote, early seral habitat. But if you fly over Mount St. Helens, of which if you fly from Portland to Seattle, you fly directly over Mount St. Helens, and on you see this distinct, super obvious line of where Warehouser land begins, where their trees are now, you know, really big, really green, and looking awesome. Again, their objective is fiber production. And then you have the, uh, the, the National Park boundary, and I think now it's a national park, uh, of which there is like mostly understory herbaceous vegetation kind of hanging out there, maybe with a couple seedlings making their way through to the quote unquote canopy. Um, but the objectives for those two are, are different. So would I support using, uh, mm. the, yeah, again, the, the objectives of your city park is different than the objectives of the national park. But that was a kind of natural ecosystem disturbance, right? Versus is climate change a natural ecosystem disturbance? I would argue no, not at the rate that it's happening. Well, is genetic is planting a genetically engineered tree an ecosystem disturbance? Because that's what I'm curious. Like, is the act of planting a genetically engineered tree on these different in these different types of settings? I would so I think a lot about disturbance. Right. Um, I think a lot about disturbance from from fire and wind throw, uh, and landslides. And I study soils, so those disturbance factors are. You don't have to be a soil scientist to see in the data that these disturbances are, disturbing, right? 
But if you plant a yeah, good one. But if you plant a genetically modified tree, is that a disturbance in the way I think of disturbances? That that was a scoff. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't think that's a disturbance. Okay. Nearly the same physical ecological impact. Um, but if you plant a genetically modified tree that isn't tested, um, in terms of how it's going to affect the whole ecosystem function, could it be a disturbance? Maybe, but it's going to take, you know, 30 or 80 years to kind of develop. Right. All right. And so then one last setting or yeah, one last setting question, I guess. So let's say you're, you know, future you uh-huh. manages or owns your own tree farm, your own large property. Would, and Swiss Noodlecast is having huge impacts, you know, in the area. You see your fellow landowners having huge swaths of their property die. Would you plant genetically engineered varieties of Swiss needle cast on your own property? Yeah. No hesitation. Quick, yeah. Yeah. My, yeah, my own property? Yeah, because my objective is to keep my trees. Right, yeah. <laughs> like and if you're is, a tree farmer, you're trying to make money off those trees. Yeah, like that is my objective. Yeah. Do, do I care that it is non-natural? Non-natural, quote unquote. <laughs> Um, what is nature? I'll, I'll tell you what, if I can hear more, if I can still hear birds, do they care that it's a, a GMO tree? Probably not. Like, can they still make a nest if, if it gets some kind of like weird branch that snapped and can they build a home there? Yeah, probably. Do they care that like one gene is different that can help, you know, collect aluminum in the soil or something or help prevent Swiss needle cast? Do, do they care? No, no, they, they're just trying to find a home too. All right. So up until this point, we talked a lot about planting a genetically engineered tree uh-huh. and the different ways that you could plant a genetically engineered tree or the types of ways, ways you could source material, I guess. Um, so now, so making a genetically engineered tree is not easy. It's not like, oh yeah, now I have one. I did that overnight. It was great. <laughs> I used my CRISPR, you know, to- totally cool. Like a couple of days later, I had my GMO tree. Now this is a multi-decade process. Like just from a research side, but also from a regulatory standpoint, it's very complicated out there. Um, so I guess I'm curious, and and you said that you would want some large scale trial studies, some like controlled investigations into the impacts, yeah. the system wide impacts of it. From a research perspective, is this is this something that you feel like we should be researching? Is this mm-hmm. something we should be putting time and money, lots and time, lots of money, lots of hours? Uh, I'm going to take another page from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He did an interview with, I don't remember who it was now. Um, They were discussing the the impact that R1 institutions, that research institutions have on on like the the common the common world, of where he describes the return on investment for grants and graduate students and researchers at research institutions is simply too far away. From what, uh, from what investors think of, so like, the classic example is like here on the show we typically interview graduate students about some aspect of their research. Uh, I can think of one graduate student in particular who looks at one chemical reaction within a single LED display, and if that if this one reaction is more, if he can figure out how to make this reaction occur, it makes LEDs like 30% more efficient. It makes uh, LEDs easier to produce. So like, what does that, what does that mean on like the, like the, um, 
the, the supply chain network of like molybdenum and all these heavy metals that's super hard to get, like that's a massive impact. But is, is anybody going to invest in him right now? No, because he's like doing proof of concept kind of stuff. It's going to be some other, you know, private company 15 or 20 years from now that like takes his idea and scales it and then actually implements it. But the idea started here at research institutions 20 years removed from when it could be applied. So keeping that in mind of like the research that happens here that graduate students do every day, like we won't realize our, our impacts. Um, so I think, yes, it should absolutely be looked into, even if it's a long time horizon. Because it could have that big impact. Yeah. Like the return on investment on genetically modifying a tree could be huge. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Okay. All right. We just have two more questions here about GMO. So for those of you that are listening that are like, oh, my God, when is this getting wrapped up? I swear <laughs> we're close. So, uh, okay, so... What if there were other options available? So we talked about GMO being one, and if it was a tool in the toolbox that we, as in humans, we're kind of being irresponsible if we don't use it. What if, what if we could do the same thing through scientific breeding? Or through, I mean, they're using fungicide right now, which obviously is a chemical input, but what if there were other options on the table to help trees be resistant? How would you feel about genetically engineering then? You know, would your support change if you knew that there were other options that could have the same effect, the same outcome? No. I think of this in the same way that I think of um, ways that we need to reduce our carbon footprint. So, like, uh, what, it, like, let's say I was super supportive of, of solar energy, right? And then I found out that, like, hey, with nuclear energy, you know, you can you can have you know a really high energy output. These new nuclear systems aren't nearly as dangerous as they were before, uh, X, Y, Z. Would my feelings change about solar? No, because we need to use every tool in our toolbox to fight climate change. So um, no, my, I, I don't think my views would change. Uh, if, if uh, my, my views might change if we had some other you know magical wand that we say like, oh, we can actually predict the influence of like this other um, like if, if we could somehow do if we could somehow use nuclear power to instead of oil for cars like that would be a major major benefit if we had like teeny little nuclear power power plants in our cars then we wouldn't need oil like that would make me change my mind about solar power right but yeah that that's like a super far end of the spectrum right yeah that's a that's pretty far out yeah, I mean, Mar out, man. I mean, Mars Curiosity rover runs on a little mini nuclear power plant. Wow, pretty rad. I wonder how afraid people would be of that after you know Chernobyl. I just, I can't, I can't think. I, th me, and many other people, I don't think could think about nuclear power without thinking about that. And so, I think it's really interesting in the context of you know, it could have huge, it could have huge benefits. Like if we could shift our thinking to being accepting of it. What 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 could we do? The possibilities are so big, you know. Yeah, the the new nuclear power plants are not nearly as volatile or vulnerable. <laughs> volatile or or vulnerable. Those yeah. are two great V words. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Last question. Um, and you've mentioned some things about this, but so scientists and land managers decided that they did want to pursue this. They, they wanted to look into genetically engineering a tree or planting one that they had already developed. 
what type of information or evidence would you need to support that decision? <laughs> you said large scale trials. This is interesting. I'd, um, I, I, I would want to see, I would want to see the, the, the peer reviewed research. I'd want to read the journal articles. I'd want to read the appendix and I'd want their data publicly available so I can replicate their results. Oh, okay. What but a scientist I, but you I'm are. not most people, right? Like most people don't know that you could actually request data from, from the, from the PI to, to make sure that it's, it's, it's replicable. Um, but th those are the kinds of steps that I would personally want to take. Okay. Is there any type of like, like proof? Well, proof, I guess that you would want, like, I want proof that this isn't affecting X or that this is operating the same way as Y. Mm. So I think whatever, you know, this large trial study that goes to you know, re reproductive age, there are going to be a million things that they measure, right? There's always going to be that million and one th thing that they didn't measure of which someone's always going to find something that they didn't measure, right? Someone's always going to find like, oh, but that one bacterial species that's abundant in, you know, like 0.02% of the samples that we found, like, what is that going to do? Like there is, there is a threshold that I think is practical in terms of quote unquote proof uh, versus, you know, any, any T that can be crossed and any I that can be dotted, it has to be all done within some level of reason. So, is there going to be a hundred percent proof? No, but would I be comfortable with 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 ninety eight point nine? Probably, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, those are all the the prepared questions I have for you. Um, I do have a few demographic questions. I don't know if you want to answer those on air, though. Um, we'll answer those off air. Okay. Sounds <laughs> good. Uh, yeah. So, I guess do you have do you have any questions for me? Thank you so much for participating but do you do you have anything that you wanted to elaborate on or do you have any questions you want to ask me I guess as a form of wrapping up um you know I think let's go to a song okay. and then we'll come back on air okay. and then I'll ask you some questions yeah. about who you plan to use this interview with others and how that and how that could inform your research moving forward all right sounds good Why you got me wasting time laying next to you? Why do you tell me come over to watch you? Just stare at your phone, don't know why I expected you To give me attention, affection, and love You're like a drug, never enough Can't take your high, need a new plug You got me bent, got me way too messed up And I don't know why I'm even still here Okay, you just heard Kalani with her song In My Feeling this is Adrian Gallo. I'm here. I'm joined by Betsy Emery. Uh, she just interviewed me for. I, I was your lab, your test rat. Yeah, I've had I've had a few test subjects so far. You're one of them. Uh, it's been fun. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I, I I had a good time. For listeners, if you missed it, uh, I'm gonna put it up as our podcast. Um, but let's kind of regroup here. That interview you're gonna be using for your master's research. So. Uh, remind our listeners what it what it is you're doing for your master's and how this interview will be used for that project. Yeah, so I'm studying how people perceive nature, how people's environmental values or kind of perceptions of what is natural affects the way they make decisions 
or the way they think about genetically modifying trees to be resistant to forest health threats. Um, yeah, and so there. This is a new field. GMOing trees is pretty new. <laughs> it's been happening. GMOing. That's a, a, a yeah. verb now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, any uh, yeah, lots of things can be verbs. You just got to be creative with language. It's a socially constructed thing, anyway. So, uh, yeah. So that research, the process of trying to make GMO trees, has really only been happening for the past couple of decades, and now researchers are trying to be like. Well, we should kind of understand how people are responding to this as a potential option um, and see, like, is this going to be the huge controversy that we've seen in GMO agriculture? Mm. You know, that has been from a global, globally, really, it has been hugely controversial. Um, and so if if people are going to respond to forest biotechnology the same way, we should know that in advance. And Really, I'm hoping that better understanding how people think about this will really help us be kind of proactive in the way that we uh, shape the way we talk about this as a potential option. Do you, do you think people are aware of the fact that the Forest Service especially, but I'm sure many other government and non-government institutions have been using assisted migration to kind of plant trees in odd places that they typically wouldn't live in, but because climate change is happening so quickly, maybe they'll thrive in? Do I think that the general public is aware of that as yeah. an option? Uh, no. Or not that it's an option, but that it's already being, be, done. being done. Yeah. Yeah. No, honestly, the one thing that I have and I I feel, you know, there's all these jokes around like, oh, well, scientists live in an ivory tower and they've been deeply separated from the general public and the way <laughs> they think about things is different. And and they look down on the lay public. You know, I read that all the time. The and lay my, people. Lay people don't know anything. They're out there just living their life in seemingly ignorance, you know, and that's like the rhetoric in a lot of this lang uh, this literature, which I am disgusted by. But I'm also about to say, which is that. I don't think that people who, I don't think that the general like person that lives in a city that doesn't spend a lot of time in nature or doesn't really take it upon themselves to learn these things inherently knows these things. You know, assisted migration is super interesting tool. Um, but if I, if I didn't have an undergrad degree in forestry, I'm not sure that I would know what that is, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm pursuing an MS in forestry right now, you know, <laughs> but it's super siloed. So I don't know. I, I also had kind of my, my, my fundamental assumptions around what people knew checked through this pilot process. Like one of my scenarios is about mountain pine beetle. Bark beetles are hugely, uh, hugely in epidemics in, in the Rocky mountains. When you think about Idaho, uh, Montana, Colorado. Colorado got hit. Yeah, really yeah. Colorado is like ground zero of bark, bark beetles, if you want to think about it that way. But to me, I was like, everyone in the world knows what bark beetles are. You know, these are a hugely impacting thing. This is in your face. You see, like in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, everyone's going to think of like a front page, giant half page photo, just a landscape of dead trees. And that is not the case. In one of my first interviews, one of my first pilot interviews, um, my best friend who I have dragged all <laughs> all over, we've, you know, <laughs> gone backpacking in Denali. We've like gone on river trips down the Grand Canyon. We have camped in the Swiss Alps. Like this guy is my best friend, you know, and he's been with me through my undergrad, all these things, right? I was like, this guy, yeah, he's going to totally know what it is and had never, ever heard of bark beetles, you know, was like, maybe I've heard about this on some TV show, but... I'm not convinced that I could really speak to what it is or, 
if it's really a big deal. Mm -hmm. And to me, I was like, oh, wow, you know, that's how siloed I am in this. That to me, I thought everyone would know these things. But people, if you're not thinking about it, why would you know it? You know? Okay, so uh, so these interviews will be used. Uh, who who are you planning to interview and where? Yeah, so I I am interviewing people. So I'm trying to get people who have different types of relationships with nature. So in the beginning of the interview, I asked you a bunch of questions about how you think about nature, how you think that human should re- you know act with nature, what our relationship should be. So I'm trying to get a lot of variation in that part of the interview especially so getting people who think that yeah humans are really important and nature exists to provide humans resources mm-hmm. and then kind of getting to the other side of the spectrum that's like it doesn't really matter what nature is providing to humans because it matters that it just exists um and so i'm doing that by like targeting a number of different organizations so really trying to find organizations across the state that do work that aligns with one end of that spectrum. And then trying to reach out to different members that work with that organization, so members or employees or whatever, um, and see if they would be interested in participating and then asking those questions as a means of figuring out, were my assumptions correct? You know, I, I targeted this organization because I thought that they would fall somewhere on the spectrum, and are they actually falling on that spectrum? Can you give an example of an organization you want to target? Yeah. So I guess like, yeah, to put it into a tangible. So like Corvallis has tons of of conservation organizations. I mean, we have a land trust here that does a lot of direct preservation work um, to protect lands that are at risk. So, you know, Greenbelt Land Trust would be an awesome opportunity to talk to them about this and how they might think about it. How. But again, it's like I'm not interviewing them as Greenbelt Land Trust. I'm interviewing them as an individual who works for an organization that does conservation work. Um, yeah, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, maybe maybe loggers or people who kind of have more extractive relationships with, with nature, maybe they might have different opinions about this too. So trying to find, pinpoint those groups, I guess. Do you have a general sense of what could come out in your research or is it like a pretty black box, a pretty big black box that you're like, well, let's see where the walls are. Yeah. So that's another major difference between qualitative and quantitative work. Earlier we were talking about, you know, quantitative work is very focused on numbers, data. Well, I mean, my data is real data too, but, uh, (laughs) it is real data. It is. I'm real data. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so, so quantitative work is also hypothesis driven so that you have an out, you have an idea of what might happen. Um, in qualitative work that often does not exist. Usually you are not trying to prove a hypothesis. You are trying to figure out what the hypothesis would be for future studies. So to me, it's like, I, I don't have a hypothesis written into my research proposal, but I do think I do think that there will be differences and how, how people with different relationships with nature really reason about this topic. That's kind of my overarching research question. How do people with different relationships with nature reason about forest biotechnology? And I think that there will be differences. I can't I, I, I don't know what those differences will be. And that's what I'm excited about is that I get to talk to a a ton of people. Like I get to talk to a hundred different people and figure out 
a hundred different people. Yeah, I get to do this There's with a like hundred hours of interviews. Yeah, thank God for transcription services because I mean <laughs> they cost a lot of money, but I'm not transcribing these for sure. Oh, uh, goodness, no. Yeah, but then how fun, you know? I get to have just great conversations with people who do interesting work and have amazing and interesting things to say about something that I'm deeply fascinated by. So yeah, it's a hundred hours, but it's like, what a fun hundred hours. That's the, <laughs> that's the extrovert in me definitely coming out like, yes, I can't wait. <laughs> Okay, so then with, with that said, um, have have you asked yourself all of these questions and answer them yourself? Or do you like purposely try and take yourself out of this situation and be like the quote unquote objective scientist who doesn't have feelings this way or that way? You're just like trying to extract the information of why your interviewee feels this way. Yeah, that's a fun that's a fun balance to, to walk uh, in in qualitative research too. So definitely one of the major parts of qualitative research is that you I, and especially in interview research, I am I am the research instrument. You know, like I am asking questions. So everything about me really taints or can taint what you're going to say, you know, if I'm friendly and inviting and smiling, you're going to want to talk to me more. If I'm sitting here being like asking questions that are written in a really biased way, like, oh yeah, this is a huge issue. We need to address it. Right. Uh, you're going to have a very different response to that than being like, tell me how you, how you feel about the severity of this issue. You're going to have a different response. So there's definitely a lot of intentionality that goes into designing an interview guide that people are going to respond to in a non-biased, but, uh, non-biased way but still provides them like depth of of answer but I also did have to do a lot of soul searching around my my project and really identify like how do I feel about this and how can I minimize that feeling so that the people I'm interviewing don't get that you know like and so I had to include this quote-unquote statement of positionality in my in my research proposal which is like a three-page paper that I wrote that was essentially like, I feel this way about this issue. And, and here's the ways that I'm going to try to minimize the impact of my feelings <laughs> in the ways that I interact with my participants, <laughs> which is definitely a really funny thought exercise. Uh, it started in my journal. I'll say that. And then it here's moved a, to a word doc. <laughs> here's how I become less of a human. Yeah. Here's how I care. I seem like I care less about this issue. <laughs> When really all I do is think and talk and like go way too overboard about this. <laughs> yeah, huh? Yeah, that's a, a very difficult, e even even way to think to like mentally take yourself out of the research that you're. I mean, to be honest, like like personally invested in. Yeah, it's a lot different than just sending a survey out or like sending a link to a survey out to a bunch of like people that you don't know that you've never related to and be like, fill this survey out and getting data back and being like, yeah. People think X about Y. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, I'm having like a personal interaction with people right now and you're, you're never going to be able to control for that, you know? And so how can we find ways to make sure that that impact is at least, uh, similar, I guess, across everyone that participates. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's all sounds super exciting. This, these interviews are happening this summer. Is that correct? Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. My goal is to have all, my personal goal, which my advisor thinks I'm crazy for, is that I will have all of my interviews done by the beginning of fall term and at the end of September. She says December more likely. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, best of luck. Thanks. Is there anything else that you, uh, you want the listeners to know? 
Oh man, I don't know. I didn't think of some witty last line. I don't got I don't got anything. Okay. Well, we'll have you play a song or something after this so that you can have your the the, the quote unquote last word. Oh yeah. Can I play the song that I listen to most frequently when I'm writing? While you're writing? Yeah. Okay, what song is it? Uh it's by a French artist called Polo and Pan. How do you spell Polo? P O L L. Polo and Pan like Peter Pan? Yeah. And what's the song called? Uh, are you on Spotify? Uh, I'm on, no, I'm on iTunes. We can't use Spotify on, on here. Oh no. I don't know what the name of the song is. It's like, imagine it's in French. It's like, imagine knowledge. Well, I don't speak French. So why don't you give me the French word for imagine? Imagine all <laughs> I don't know. That's like horrible. My French speaking friends are probably really upset with me for saying that. Okay. Well now this is embarrassing. Okay. So, all right. My Spotify just loaded. It is, oh, it's canopy. Ah, found it. So right. uh, this is um, Polo and Pan off of their album. Ooh, how do you say that album in French? No idea. And I even went to France and studied French on that app for like a year. And I can't. I don't even know. I'm, I'm going to pronounce it like it's Spanish. Caravelle. <laughs> I'm that's into more that. Italian, I'm into actually, that. Yeah, that definitely sounded very Italian, it but I'm into Italian. it. Yeah, it's the, it's the third song. Uh Man, I don't know French at all. Also, if anyone likes this song, they're playing in Portland. Oh, when? Uh, on the first day of fall term. And I'm going, and That's I cool. would go with strangers. Hit me up. Betsy <laughs> Emery, look me up in the address book on OSU. <laughs> yeah, the yellow pages. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right, well, here it is. Betsy, thank you so much for coming on. And um, thank you for coming on the show and spending this Friday with me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please tell your friends about it and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so other podcast peeps can find our show. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hannum. Special thanks to the supporting staff for KBVR that allowed this show and podcast to be possible. The show was started by Gian Convar and Joey Holber in 2012. Its hosts include Matt McConnell, Steve Friedman, Mackenzie Smith, Kristen Finch, Adrian Gallo, Lillian Paget Cobb, Lori Lutz, Heather Forsyth, Maggie Exton, Scott Classic, Marcus Weinman, Daniel Watkins, and Harrison Steyerwalt. To learn about other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, please visit our well-curated website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. And finally... Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at KBVRID and Facebook at Inspiration Dissemination. Thank you for listening and stay curious, my friends.